Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Difficult to keep the line between the past and the present. Do you believe that someone out of the past can enter and take possession of a living being? We may be through with the past, but the past is not through with us. Welcome to The Next Picture Show, a movie of the week podcast devoted to a classic film and how it shaped our thoughts on a recent release. I'm Keith Phipps, here with... Tasha Robinson. And Scott Tobias. Behind the boards is Genevieve Kosky, who's scared of clowns. <laughs> here on The Next Picture Show, we believe that no film exists in a vacuum and that all culture is more interesting in context. So every other week, we get together to talk over a classic film and consider how it relates to a current movie. This week, we're walking the rails with a pair of coming-of-age movies adapted from works by Stephen King. One follows four childhood friends as they set off in search of a dead body as the summer of 1959 draws to a close. The other features a different group of kids doing their best not to fall victim to an evil clown. Tasha, if you're not too busy considering a Superman Mighty Mouse matchup or being menaced by Harlequins, can you describe these movies? I mean, I am pretty busy being menaced by Harlequins right now, but it's, since, t- it's time consuming, right? It, it does take a lot of, well, all of the floating takes a lot of time. I'm just going to float up here near the ceiling and explain these movies. I'm going to try to do that without ineptly trying out obscenities to prove that I'm not a kid anymore. So first we're going to talk about Stand By Me, Rob Reiner's 1986 adaptation of King's novella, The Body, from the Different Seasons collection. It's set in 1950s Oregon, and it has a simple premise. Four boys go off in search of a corpse they've heard is somewhere deep in the woods, miles from their small town. But this isn't a mundane walk in the woods. Stand By Me stars Will Wheaton, River Phoenix, Jerry O'Connell, and Corey Feldman in their pre-adolescent days. And it's about the moment when the sun starts to set on the endless summers of childhood. We're pairing the film with It, the first half of a long-in-the-works adaptation of King's massive 1986 bestseller, which similarly focuses on the moment when childhood ends. When Stand By Me hit theaters, it captured a side of King that most moviegoers hadn't seen before, where he broke with the horror genre that made him famous. The novel It, on the other hand, is a kind of magnum opus of Kingian horror. Its plot is driven by a monster to end all monsters, a creature literally powered by fear itself. But it has a lot in common with Stand By Me, once you get beneath the surface. Both are filled with kids discovering the realities of death in a world where grown-ups rarely, if ever, have their best interest in mind. And both find a lot of darkness beneath their nostalgic surfaces. In this episode, we'll focus on Stand By Me, its treatment of childhood and memory, and how it fits into the tradition of King adaptations. Then, on the next episode, we'll consider director Andy Muschietti's attempt to bring it to the screen. For now, pack your rucksacks and head down the train tracks with us for a trip back to the 1950s by way of the 1980s. In all our lives, there's a fall from innocence, a time after which we are never the same. 
It happened in the summer of 1959. A long time ago. Oh, man! Where do you hear this? Where do you hear this? What is it, man? You guys want to go see a dead body? When the night has come And the land is dark We interrupt to bring you an update on the search for the missing 12-year-old Ray Brower. Kid's gone. They're never going to find him. Not where they're looking. And the moon is the only light we'll see. You think Mighty Mouse could beat up Superman? Mighty Mouse is a cartoon. Superman is a real guy. No way a cartoon could beat up a real guy. We're going to be famous. We're going to be on every radio and TV show in the country. I still don't think we should go. If I can only have one food for the rest of my life, that's easy. Pass. Cherry flavor pass. No question about it. I'd like to go someplace where nobody knows me. We found him. We got dibs. We better start running, eyeball. They got dibs. There's four of us, eyeball. You just make your move. You're dead. For some, it's the last real taste of innocence. I'm never gonna get out of this town now, my Gory. You can do anything you want, man. And the first real taste of life. This is really a good time. The most a blast. But for everyone, it's the time that memories are made of. So darling, darling, There's no way to travel through time, but music comes close. And so, when Rob Reiner wanted to evoke the era of his film's setting, he changed the title of Stephen King's The Body to Stand By Me, after the immortal Benny King hit that plays over the closing credits. The timing is a little off. The film is set in 1959, and the song wasn't released until two years later. But what's a year or two when you've landed on a perfect encapsulation of your movie's themes? Songs are woven into the fabric of Stand By Me, from the Have Gun Will Travel theme to the Cordette's Lollipop, which the film's protagonists sing to pass the time along the way. It's no accident that music plays such a central role in this film, and in simpatico movies like American Graffiti and Dazed and Confused, movies that try to capture what it was like to be young and alive at a particular time and place. And it's no accident that they tend to be made by creators whose own younger years align with the moment in which they're set, as if they're trying to preserve forever a moment of their youth. The ones that last also have a way of finding the universal in their coming-of-age stories, and that's no doubt a part of why we're still talking about Stand By Me over 31 years later. It's deft at recreating the world of boys in the year 1959, but also in capturing the way boys edging into adolescence talk to each other in any time, heaping good-natured abuse, testing out profanity, digging into the minutiae of pop culture, and indulging in the forbidden previews of adulthood to come, whether it's through lurid pulp fiction or stolen cigarettes. But for all the high spirits of the boys' adventure, director Rob Reiner never forgets that Stand By Me is also a journey toward death, a search for a dead body that doubles as a recognition of the boys' own mortality. Gordy, played by Will Wheaton, is still figuring out how to live in a family haunted by the death of his brother. A framing device reveals from the start the fate of his best friend Chris, played with disarming sensitivity by River Phoenix. Beyond that, every character grapples with neglect or abuse of parents and other adults who let them down. In one of the most famous scenes, the boys have to race across a train trestle. If they stop moving or step wrong, they'll die. And that's the trade-off at the heart of the film. Part of journeying away from childhood is recognizing that sometimes when you fall, there's nothing to catch you, and only rocks and rushing water below. You gonna flip or not? Come on, Vern, we don't have all day. 
You lose, Gordy. <laughs> Gordy loses. Oh, Gordy just screwed the pooch. <laughs> Does the word retarded mean anything to you? Yeah, Gordy. Go get the provisions, you morphodite. Don't call me any of your mother's pet names. <laughs> what a wet end you are, LaChance. Shut up. I don't shut up. Shut up. I, I grow up. up. And, and when, when I look at you, I throw up. And then your mother goes around the corner and she licks it up. Oh. So Scott, Tasha, how did you enjoy revisiting Stand By Me? I mostly enjoyed revisiting it with, with some reservations. It was a film that I saw as a teenager and, and liked quite a bit and revisited many times back then. Uh, profanity certainly played a role in that. You know, Certainly as a boy connecting with other boys, I was into the film. I mean, as an adult, I can see um, some of the flaws in the film, particularly the framing device. And I think... The film could stand to be a little harder-edged when it kind of goes a little bit more towards the sentimental Toward the side. End. Just overall, I feel like mm-hmm. it's just a little bit buffed out, but not entirely. And, and um, you know, the, the essence of the material certainly comes through in a powerful way. I, when I first saw this film when I was a teenager, I really disliked it. And I think it's because of that phenomenon whereby younger people are often interested in seeing movies about people who are a little older than themselves. So for me, like, this is kid stuff. You know, there's a bunch of kids behaving like stupid kids. So it wasn't really a film for a teenager. Revisiting it as an adult, I don't love this movie uh, still to this day. It's, I, th- I think it's very nakedly sentimental. I think Stephen King has a very sentimental streak and that Reiner kind of pulls it out and emphasizes it pretty hard here. But I appreciate it a lot more than I did as an adolescent, in part because it's such a time capsule um, in part of Reiner's directing, but mostly just like the four central kids. These are all people who went on to have, you know, pretty big impact on movies, on television, on, on pop culture in general, and seeing them all as little boys hanging out with each other and making some very particular King dialogue actually sound believable. Uh, it's just a lot of fun. Yeah, I like it too. I actually don't only seen it once before and that was mm, 30 years ago. Um, and, uh, um, you know, I think I, I probably felt about the same way then as I do now, which is, this is, a, this is a good movie. And I think it is a sentimentality that kind of, kind of pulls it back. I mean, we'll probably get into how it fits into King's adaptations and, and how it relates to the original a little bit more, but having just read the novella, which it's brave, which I hadn't read before. I always think I've read a lot of Stephen King and then I realize there's a lot of Stephen King I haven't read because there's so much of it. Mm-hmm. And I think you're right. I think there's a, f- a few more edges in that story that aren't in the book, uh, aren't in the film rather. You know, in terms of coming of age stories goes, I think it gets a lot right. I think the dialogue isn't always naturalistic, but there's phrases in here that I, I don't know if they feel right because they're drawing like from that universal, like profanity-laden lingua franca of young teenage boys, or if the people I went to, to junior high school with were imitating this film, or like it's just like <laughs> it's such a feedback loop, but but it feels like the the right choice. I mean, it's known for its dialogue. It's probably why it's earned its R rating. How, how did the dialogue play for you this time around? There are little bits and pieces of it that do sound forced, but I am just – one of the things that's most distinctive about King's writing is the way he makes up words, he makes up phrases, tries to make up like languages among his characters. That's It's just a very distinctive thing. And when it works, it kind of creates a, a like a little insular world. And when it doesn't work, you just find yourself tripping over and over over like the made-up words. Rereading the novella, there were definitely places that I tripped, but I was actually really – surprised at how well the kids pull off some of this dialogue. And I kind of credit, like Reiner apparently kind of got them all to come for a summer and hang out together and form a relationship so they would 
play together and act together naturally like kids. And I think that that really paid off here. I mean, some of the behind the scenes stories on this movie in terms of what he did to these kids to get these performances are horrifying and fascinating. <laughs> the one the making of Doc about, about making them cry. Oh, yeah. Because they weren't upset enough when they're running from the train. So, he, yeah, he threatened to kill them because the he, he's like the, the train itself is just a bunch of guys like pushing a like a gimbaled thing along the track. And he's like, you see those, those boys? They are tired of pushing that thing, and it's because of you. If they don't kill you, I'm going to kill you. <laughs> Just like freaking the kids out. He's so out. matter of fact about that too, and like it's Rob Reiner. He's like a big, cuddly teddy bear of a guy, but it's like I don't know if that's so cool there, Rob Reiner. Well, yeah, I mean, he says it the way an animal trainer might say. Yeah. Okay, this is really funny. When this dog is looking at this guy with love, it's because I'm holding a rasher of bacon over his head. Sure, Just like it's that's his, how I tricked it's, it's this his, it's performance. It's his inner Archie Bunker. Yeah, I guess so. <laughs> that said, up. I mean, like the a lot of the emotion feels pretty real, but you were you're asking about the dialogue. Like you can't scare kids into calling each other wet ends or or whatever, you know, weird language they're using <laughs> sound natural. That's just I don't know if that came with practice or he just basically said, you know, all of these things are just ways of saying screw you. Mm-hmm. Just just put that emphasis into it. I like the dialogue and I, I particularly like the profanity. I think it makes a lot of sense as far as just kids pushing boundaries and doing things that are more adult than they actually are, uh, smoking cigarettes, swearing, playing cards, trying to grow up fast. I mean, even this, even this impetus to go out and search for this body is a, you know, an aggressive play toward moving past the stage in their life. It's like they're dictating their own coming-of-age story by going on this adventure. So that made a whole lot of sense to me. Um, one of the things that kind of sort of stood out for me this time was linked in a way to memories of my father and in his childhood and the way he describes it and how kids of that age uh, were just given an incredible amount of latitude to just go off and do whatever the hell they wanted. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, whereas now Keith and I are both parents and uh, I think are a little, I mean, our kids are quite young, but there was no, just no scenario in which our kids would ever be given this kind of I'm freedom. I'm not picturing a future in which my, my kid is wandering around Chicago on her own. Right. And my, uh, for my, two my, days. I mean, and my father, my father and his, his brother, they used to actually make bombs. They were making <laughs> yeah. bombs and they were, they were, they were jumping around, you know, into, in old factories and uh, around electrical wire. I mean, like my father said he could have been killed a million different ways as a boy. And, but at the same time, it is also up to them to learn about the world on their own, you know, and discover things that, you know, their parents, I guess in this case, are too neglectful to reveal to them themselves. To be fair, you guys are both parents in both a different era, which, you know, you're discussing, but also in a city sure, right. where the prospect of your kids going off and like camping in the woods together for a couple of nights is not really a thing. Yeah. I mean, the sense of threat here is bigger, but it's also it's just a completely different culture. I mean, even when I was a kid, I remember my family mostly lived in Oklahoma and it was pretty common for us to just take off in the morning and go wandering around on our own, go down to the local park, mm-hmm. run around in the local culverts and just like go ranging around wherever we wanted to go. Mm-hmm. And it never occurred to anybody that we needed like an adult with us there at all times. Yeah. We didn't build any explosives though. <laughs> yeah, they take it to another level. I also had a much more liberated childhood. But but enough about our childhoods. I, I just think it's a, a, an interesting sort of standout element of the film. These kids left to make discoveries on, on their own, to make mistakes, um, to act beyond their, their years, and then be punished in a way for doing that, uh, to, to, to actually get to the point where they're confronting 
um, not just the body, but other truths about their their lives and about life in, in general that that are startling and maybe too advanced for them at this point in their life. Well, even the ones that they face that aren't too advanced for them in their life, like the myth of the junkyard dog that's been built up among local kids, <laughs> yeah. and then when they see what the what that myth actually comes out to, it's a very different thing. But yeah, they're I mean they're facing different aspects of of morality and family and the danger of their own bodies with the leeches and with how other people see them like the whole sequence with the man who runs the junkyard kind of coming to terms with you know not just the fact that teddy's father has been institutionalized um with presumably ptsd but the fact that everybody knows about it and potentially in a small town has an attitude about it like that's a lot of of fairly heady stuff for a bunch of kids to be coming to terms with even before they have to confront you know big kids danger and and literal death as is also the notion that adults don't have their back adults will let them down adults adults will forget about them they don't have their best interest in mind chris has a story about just being betrayed when he tries to do the right thing by returning the milk money and someone who sees him not as a kid seeking forgiveness but as a, you know another person that they can take advantage of that's a pretty disheartening truth to face at any age but especially when, when you're not quite done with childhood yet there's a really interesting sequence in the novella where when gordy goes off by himself and buys the hamburger for the kind of picnic that they have the man who's running the store tries to cheat him mm-hmm. by putting his thumbs on the scale um, by deliberately miscalculating what he owes and he has a big confrontation with him in the movie version the store clerks attempts to cheat him aren't there but instead there's just this very sad scene where the guy is talking about his older brother who died and you just you get a sense of even for somebody who's trying to be kind who's trying to reach out there's just an incredible gulf there between Mm -hmm. the inner life of a child and any attempt by an adult to communicate well it's a sore spot too i mean i think he obviously getting impression from his parents that the wrong kid died Mm -hmm. and and since the kid happened to be this incredible football player the rest of the community feels like there's a pretty substantial loss and of course the clerk questions him about whether he plays football and if he's any good at it you know and of course he's, he's not he does he, this is not that's not who he is he writes stories you look just like him anyone ever tell you that that kind of, that kind yeah. of stuff reiner has said that he cast kids who were kind of close to their characters because with kids that age you can't push them too far away from who they are what do you think of these performances and, and do they work for you i mean cory feldman kind of coming across as a spastic dork is so perfect and mm-hmm. he's played very variations on this character, the kind of over-eager, more or less eager to please, but sometimes like a little too edgy and a little too angry kid. We've seen him in this role multiple times, and it just, you know, this is this is the tiny young duckling version of it, and it's kind of heartbreaking and beautiful. Yeah, he's he's really good, and I, I can't... Uh, River Phoenix is just unbelievable in this yeah. movie. I just, I could not get over that performance, and I think it's just, it's so natural, and it's funny that you mentioned that Reiner cast actors close to their characters because it just it seems like there's absolutely no border that's being crossed between River Phoenix just natural sensitivity and and empathy and just precociousness yeah and precociousness and the character he's playing it's all right there it's everything is just so on the surface with that performance I it just completely blew me away And, and and it connects so much with all of you know Phoenix's performances to come and you know, running on empty in my my own private Idaho and these these sorts of films. It's just he's he was one of those James Dean like actors who just 
didn't hide anything and everything was right on the surface and authentic and beautiful. Um, it's nicely done too, because you, you get those moments where he's apart and you realize he's kind of wise beyond his years, but he's never played as wise beyond his years. Like he's a kid. And like, you know, when the other kids are taunting Gordy, he joins in taunting them too. It's, it's like, it feels right. It feels like this is someone who's going to choose his moments to be that sensitive and that open, but, but that's who he is. Yeah. They're all maybe a little too self-aware him. Most of all, I think in terms of laying out some of the themes of the movie in, in explanatory form but you're exactly right like the fact that he's he's old and wise beyond his years to a somewhat suspicious and cinematic degree doesn't keep him from like piling on the other kids Mm -hmm. when you know that's that's what we're doing right now I think Wheaton and O'Connell are really good too. Man, Wheaton's uh, performance is just kind of this, just a, like a little too smart for his own good kid who lives a little too much in his own head, but is authentically like delighted when he's included. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it just, it again, it feels like really close to kind of what we know about him as a human being in the world. You know, he's become such a pop culture fixture and he's so expressive about like his life and his experience. You get a sense that you know what his personality is. And you really see it on the screen here. Yeah. And of course, then you put all four of them together and their dynamic as a quartet and then broken down individually. All that makes sense. And it's kind of richly drawn. I think that that just closeness between Will Wheaton's character and and Phoenix's character and, you know, a lot of the razzing that goes on involving Jerry O'Connell. And it feels like a lived in dynamic, I guess, between all of these boys. And it makes sense that they're friends, even though they on paper, they don't make entirely a lot of sense together. Some of them, you know, it doesn't make sense that they would necessarily be friends with Jerry O'Connell or, you know, or if um, Feldman's character is perhaps too spastic or deranged or, or unstable, he's a difficult kid to be friends with i mean again you gotta take the small town dynamic into effect it's just the fact i mean these may be the only kids of of that exact age who happen to hang out at the treehouse and like to play cards that's kind of it's it's underlined a bit in the novella i think that there are a lot more kids that are sort of like uh satellites to that dynamic that hang out in the treehouse that just happened to be like the group that was in the treehouse when Vern showed up with the news about the corpse so it's not necessarily that these four kids are the best friends ever it's that these are the kids who are around to take on his adventure you mentioned other people being out of town like other regular treehouse regulars being on vacation mm-hmm. yeah both the film and the novella are smart about showing these these aren't friendships that are necessarily built to last and, and the, the boys drift apart some of them do anyway. yeah as time went on we saw less and less of teddy and Vern, until eventually they became just two more faces in the halls it happens sometimes friends come in and out of your life like busboys in a restaurant I heard that Vern got married out of high school, had four kids, and is now the forklift operator at the Arsenault Lumberyard. Teddy tried several times to get into the army, but his eyes and his ear kept him out. Last I'd heard, he'd spent some time in jail and was now doing odd jobs around Castle Rock. We're old, but we're not <laughs> We're not baby boomers. We didn't live through this. Does this feel like a, an accurate depiction of the, the time to you? You know, I get the sense of the time less with these kids, although their their like ubiquitous smoking thing does feel very fifties. The idea that you're now suddenly a man if you get a pack of cigarettes like rolled up in your white t shirt sleeve. That feels very 50s. I get much more of a sense of the 50s from Ace Merrill and his gang. Um, they're carving. Greasers. Yeah, they're griefers. They they carve idiot tattoos into each other's shoulders. They <laughs> sit right. around messing with carburetors mm-hmm. and they, they drag race with the tops down. They feel like 
well, very, very Kingian, very cliched, you know, drag race and two-bit hoodlums, as uh, Jordy calls them. King just loves this era, too. Oh, I know. And then the music really helps to bring it to life as well, the music and the cars and the wardrobe. I mean, it, it definitely feels like, you know, Stephen King's 50s come to life. So in that sense, Reiner is right in line with, with the way King tends to think about the era, which is mostly nostalgic, but then also colored a little bit by darkness and, and violence and neglect and things under the surface that are not so great. One of the more memorable additions to the movie is the Superman versus Mighty Mouse and other like <laughs> pop culture arguments that they have. It's interesting, too, because I, I know I'm not the first to put this out, but watching this again, it's like, wait, this is... Reservoir Dogs before before <laughs> Reservoir Dogs is kind of a very Tarantino-esque conversation. And slightly less profane than that opening uh, Tarantino sure. Reservoir Dogs conversation. But, but in the same... In in the very same. much in the same spirit. <laughs> yeah. No, that's a, that's a good point. And that conversation, as silly as it is, with just that ultra-serious, wow, that's weird, what is goofy? That, to some degree, feels more authentic to the kid experience. That sense of like taking pop culture analysis super seriously, which of course as adults is not something we do at all, ever. <laughs> Very frivolous. Yeah. Uh, but taking it seriously at, while you're making up your own rules, I guess. The the Mighty Mouse versus Superman thing in particular, just the, ugh, no, duh, one of them's a cartoon and one of them's real. That <laughs> argument, even with the, with the kid, if you asked, I mean, is he a real, real person? Like, no, obviously he's a story. But that's just, it's like a knee-jerk reaction based in sort of uh, unspoken rules of childhood and just a, a childhood understanding of the seriousness and importance of pop culture. I, I really like that conversation. Yeah, and, I, and some of the stuff like the boys around the campfire, you know, not quite asleep, talking about cherry pez and this sort of thing, uh, reminded me so much of my own youth and, you know, whenever I had whatever sleepovers or something. Are they sleepovers for boys? They call them sleepovers? Mm-hmm. Sure. Yeah. Those are the kind of silly conversations you would have until you fall asleep at three in the morning. You'd, you'd just ask dumb questions and that seemed like the right kind of a dumb question to consider. As far as it being really authentically 50s in any way, though, I think you could transpose this pretty seamlessly to the 80s. You'd probably have like less smoking and the kids would dress differently. But I think Stranger Things showed us pretty clearly that this same dynamic in terms of like a group of tight-knit kids who have certain pop culture fascinations in common who like hang out together and who live in a world that's kind of bordered by adults but not particularly linked with adults like all of this works pretty well in a different era just some of the signifiers the music would be different and a few other things And, I mean, I think the fact that Muschietti's version of it, the childhood phase, has been moved from the 50s to the 80s, I think we're going to see, again, that, uh, you know, it it moves fine. Like, King's obsession is with the 1950s because that's where his childhood was. But I don't think that there's so much here that couldn't be moved to another era. No. I mean, I guess you have to set a movie at some point in time. (laughs) Um, Though though I will say, I mean, this was made in uh, the mid-80s. And so I think nostalgia and in the, the past certainly play an important role. So you really do have to set it back then, don't you? I, I think if you set it now, the kids would look for a dead body in Minecraft or something. I, <laughs> I'm not sure how it would work. I don't know. I don't think that that's true, though. I think there's a a certain age at which like something real, something in the real world does have an impact that is uh, you're very conscious of the fact that that's different from 
you know, stuff that you see in magazines, stuff that you see on TV, stuff that you see on the internet, stuff that you see on video games. These kids might have to be a little younger to be at that point, uh, because here they're just so visibly right on the edge of pubescence that uh, River Phoenix apparently (laughs) hit adolescence during the course of the movie Mm. and like shot up like eight inches between the shooting of like some scenes and other scenes. And you can, if you're really watching for it, you can tell they they might have to be a little younger uh, in the 80s. But then again, I don't know that they would. So this was Rob Reiner's third film after The Spinal Tap and The Sure Thing. Does anything that makes it like a particularly a Rob Reiner film to you? It almost does if you add in the rest of his career. Mm. Then you can see certain things stand out. I, I can't really see a huge amount of connection between the sure thing in Spinal Tap in this movie, but I can certainly you can certainly see the connections between it and The Princess Bride, or it and these this run of family films that he's made recently, and just that introduction of of sentiment, pure sentiment. I mean that that's become a major part of his films that was not present really all that certainly not in this is spinal tap but you know really just barely in the sure thing and and so this this kind of feels like the first movie by the rob reiner we would come to know (laughs) sort of though i mean mean, when harry met sally is a different sort of film and and misery is a much different sort of film and there's some and a few good men misery i mean misery also kind of like takes the rough edges off a little bit you know that ankle or whatever was supposed to be gone that was a decapitation i don't Uh, think you can call it a decapitation when you cut off somebody's severing Yeah, but yeah, Is well, it decapitation only heads. Yeah, yeah, can't decapitate a foot, Scott. But even if you could decapitate a foot, I mean, your your point is uh, well, lopping it off. Yeah, you know, your your point is appropriate. Although that might have just been a budgetary thing. I think it's probably it was a deliberate decision. Oh, I, I, was it? Yeah, I did a little research on that. Oh, nice. Yeah, impressive. <laughs> I accidentally did a little research <laughs> for a piece I wrote for the Washington Post. So um, I would say he's. I think actors matter to him. I mean, coming coming from an acting yeah. background, and I, I feel like that's kind of kind of a thread that runs through all the Rob Ryder films I've seen. Is they feel like you know, let's find these characters, let's rehearse this. Let's work this out together. Let's let's torture these kids. Let's torture always torturing kids. Yes. I, I wonder if he tortured like Billy Crystal nearly as much as he tortured these kids. <laughs> he made a run in front of a train just, just, <laughs> just because. I do think that there is a pretty mawkish broadness that runs through a lot of his films, including Harry Met Sally and like Princess Bride is actively making fun of a certain kind of uh, sentimentality, fantasy sentimentality. And the humor of it is a lot of fun, but it is, it's a broad movie by design. But the, the framing segments are pretty cheesy in a way. And I think they're effectively cheesy because of the type of story it is. But then when you look at Harry Met Sally, when you look at, I think even The, the Sure Thing to some degree, I think there's a, just a certain broadness of character in particular and of the kind of storytelling that to some degree was like endemic to 80s movies, but just feels very Rob Reiner to me at this point. I have a very particular question for you about the end of this film. I think the our perception of the end of this film might have changed over time because when I remember seeing this film in the eighties, he writes he's writing this all this down as a story, right? And then, you know, he gets to the final line, which I don't think is actually pretty good. If you're not thinking about who you're hanging out with when you were twelve when you watched the end of that movie, I don't I don't know who you are. Mm-hmm. Um, and he turns the computer off. And now I think that's just, you know, whatever, I turn my computer off. <laughs> but then I think it was supposed to be him erasing all this right huh am i am i wrong about that that's certainly how i perceived it then i had not 
taken that into account. To be honest, though, I would really, without Reiner saying something about it, I would hesitate to read too much into it because pretty much everything involving computers and movies is inaccurate. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> all right. Yeah, well, I never, I'd never thought about it that way at all. Measure. I just thought, I thought it was like just that kind of um, meta thing of an of, a, of an author revealing to us that this is his story. And if I want to dig deep into the memory well, I think there's even a joke about that in the Mad Magazine parody of this, but I cannot, wow. I cannot guarantee that. Yeah, there wow. is, actually, because you are always right when you, when you, <laughs> when you say when you say things like, if I recall, okay. it's, it's pretty much gospel, and it's definitely there somewhere. No, right, there's but, also, I mean, there's no way to tell whether he just saved the thing uh, just before turning the computer that's off. That's true. All right. Well. I like that interpretation enough that I kind of want it to be part of the story, but as I say, I'm not sure that I believe Reiner thought that through necessarily. Just do another draft. Why just why delete the thing? Oh, he just rewrites <laughs> it every day. Because it's too, like, personal, oh, right. too personal for him. Living through this uh, period in his life on a daily basis now. Yeah. Mm-hmm. When, his, when his son says he gets like that when he's writing, he oh, means boy. he gets like that every day when he writes down this story. Uh, so I don't think any of us love the framing device and i find the narration Uh, no it's like (laughs) it's basically like the the ultimate freeze frame (laughs) you know freeze frame record scratch (laughs) that's me you might want to get into that situation situation. it definitely Uh, is that type of narration and it just again it tells when it should be showing it's just i almost never go for this that there's so many movies that are framed like this and i never ever like the framing device except in the princess bride <laughs> uh he would do the same thing in the princess bride with peter falk of course that was peter falk com- you know, there was a lot of commentary on storytelling and that was a brilliant device that worked like gangbusters but here oof, it was rough rough mm. rough to hear yeah it's rough in part because like if you're going to do something like this okay first of all without the voiceover interpolating itself into what starts to feel like a fairly naturalistic story about a bunch of kids on an adventure and then Dreyfus's voice drops in to explain to you what you've just seen mm-hmm. and, and its relevance so if there's too much of it but there's also not enough of it for it to work at all as part of the story. And maybe we just needed more of a setup at the beginning that wasn't just, you know, Dreyfus sitting in his truck glancing at a newspaper and then the outro is him sitting at a computer like with these kids kind of badgering him. You don't really get a sense for his life at all. Like what has become, who he is, what's important to him, why he's there. He is just so nakedly a device rather than a character. Though I'm going to, I will say, I will make one defense of the narration. The, the moment when he accounts for Chris's fate mm. and he disappears from the frame, you know, and he, he talks about how he intervened and what sort of adult he became. That was super affecting. And I don't know how you would do that without the voiceover narration. Yeah, I don't think Dreyfus is, is the problem. I think it maybe it just could have been used a little more effectively. I, you know what? I think it would work better without the opening. I think if you just have the conclusion, I think it's not. It's less of a problem. Well, here's the thing, though. You need some sort of establishing thing because there are a few moments that just play differently without the narration. And one of the big ones is – No, I mean you could have the narration, but you don't have that opening where he's like looking at the newspaper and so, and you see the kids – you know, somebody and Chris is dead and you – know. But I mean you, you need to establish it. You need to set it up. You can't just have no, him – you go, it's the summer of 1959. I was hanging around with my three best friends. <laughs> oh, that there sounds awful Boom. too. That just really sounds <laughs> awful. That's pretty good, Keith. <laughs> yeah. So the Look moment – Stephen King. Here I come. 
<laughs> what was Stephen <laughs> King's approach to this? Like, how did how was that's it what planned? I was going to say. All right, so Stephen King's one of the the big reasons I think for the uh, voiceover here is to get King's writing more or less verbatim mm. into the story over and over and over. And one of the big moments that I think would play very differently without the voiceover is him trying to explain the impact of seeing a dead body because you know there's so much lead up. Oh, we're going to go see a corpse. We're going to go see a kid's corpse, and you almost think it's not going to happen because this is an adventure in the woods and child corpses are not necessarily a part of the shape of this kind of nostalgic story. But then when you see it, you know, we see people die in movies all the time. Like, how can you understand the impact of what that feels like to a 12-year-old and to a 12-year-old in 1959? I feel like the voiceover there is in part necessary to kind of prime you for what they're feeling because they can't talk about it. They they barely understand it themselves. The understanding of the impact of that moment comes from the adult who is looking back and saying, now I have the words to explain to you how this feels. But I see, I would say, again, I don't like to tell filmmakers what to do, but I almost feel like you could convey that through quiet and through reaction shots and through subtle, more subtle techniques and actually coming out and saying how they're feeling plus right after they see the body and it's not this cause for elation or, or hope for heroism then they have to that confrontation with with ace and his boys and and that also gives them a gives you a sense of how they're feeling because because of course they're like nobody's taking this body away you're not taking them we're not going anywhere with this body i mean i feel like that's all in the dialogue and you don't need anybody explaining why i think you, hey i don't know for me the ending just plays very awkwardly and you understand that it's it's about more than the kid, especially from from where it goes. You understand that they're having a an emotional moment around the whole thing. But the the whole idea of we we got dibs, you know, we got <laughs> dibs on this body, as they say, is just such a strange concept, especially since they weren't the ones that discovered him in the first place. Yeah. The fact that. You know, there are d- different factions laying claim to this body as though it's their property still plays as oddly for me, no matter how much explanation there is around it or how little, how pared down it might be. It's still weird. And then there's the fact that in the novella, this confrontation happens in the middle of like a blinding hailstorm. And it's very, very dramatic. And here it plays, it's it's broad daylight, and it seems a lot more casual to me. It just plays very strangely to me. Broad daylight is cheaper. Broad daylight is way cheaper than manufacturing a hailstorm. <laughs> so Stephen King has called this pretty much the first adaptation of one of his stories to get it right, um, oh, which is <laughs> remarkable. Can, can, I, can I name all the Stephen King adaptations beforehand? Yeah, they got, yeah, sure. they got it right almost all of them at that point. I mean, there was Carrie, was Carrie and The Shining and Cujo Dead, and Christine and, and The Dead Zone. Dead like, Zone. There was like all this stuff, all these, all, the best Stephen King adaptations happen right away. <laughs> Big baby. <laughs> <laughs> I think you're right. Hey, wait, had Maximum Overdrive happened? I, <laughs> Not, I haven't looked at it. I think it's the same, I think. same year as Maximum Overdrive. So wait, like which one of them did better? I mean, that's kind of a dead <laughs> heat, right? I think you're right. But I also think if you're Stephen King, this actually feels like a direct adaptation of a Stephen King. Mm-hmm. Chronologically, I would say it's the first one to really get his authorial voice onto the screen. So I think that's 
fair because it's super literal about putting his words on the screen. <laughs> That's really true, does. but also the and, yeah, and also the the and it's a fairly faithful adaptation with some edges sanded off, as we say. Sand, sand, sand. I'm surprised he wasn't um, a little more enthused about Christine. <laughs> it's been so long since I've seen that. It's really one. good. I, oh, I saw it for really, the first really time good, and it's fairly like, recently, and yeah. it's it's a fun it's movie. Yeah, it's a surprising it, 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 movie. It feels, it feels like first Stephen King yeah. book I read. And my teacher, I was like in fifth grade, my teacher expressed concern to my parents I should not be reading Stephen King at such a young age. Oh. Probably right. <laughs> I mean, childhood is, is literally for reading. For, for, for those of us that read books in childhood, uh, childhood is pretty much for reading stuff like two years past what you should, quote unquote, yeah. be reading yeah, and right. having your teacher express concern about it. That's yeah. what it's for. I think I put, I think I put <laughs> Stephen King smoking. on the shelf for like a, another year or so and started reading Stephen King again. But yeah. I am a little curious if you remember at all how that played because Christine in particular is just, it's so much a book about 50s nostalgia. Mm-hmm. And like the oldish teenager's relationship with a car back then. And I'm very curious how it played to like fifth grade Keith. I just remember it was one of a series of, you know, either film or books that, that, that made me fear high school was a place where he's going to get kicked in the nuts all the time. <laughs> <laughs> so there's a really graphic description of being being kicked in the nuts. Yeah, and and, and there is in the, in the body too. There's a, it's a fairly graphic description of that. So yes, I was afraid of uh, testicle injuries. Yeah, this movie and it's uh, and that's it's, the scariest part. Is it's genital leech. Uh, obviously, that is something that people remember a lot. Will Wheaton got teased for it for decades. He is possibly being teased for it right now somewhere. Hey, you're leech boy. I have no context for how that plays to a dude. Uh, <laughs> It's not good. <laughs> not pleasant. Uh, no. Scott's no. making scrunchy face. Yeah, it's not good. I, I wouldn't want it. Nope. Uh, but I mean, that I think spot, that I, spot for the leech. But I think there is, you know, in this film as well, there, there's a very particular kind of greaser bully that I never actually really encountered that much in my in real life. But <laughs> I, I was fearful, uh, fearful of before coming into into high school. Yeah, not growing up in the fifties meant I like I really did not encounter many <laughs> very very distinctly fifties style bullies, and God, <laughs> they're all over King's work. Like this particular, the, the off the top of my head, in Christine, in the Stand, in just a bunch of short stories, in Needful Things. There's one. It's just it's an archetype that definitely haunts him. And you know, here there's a whole pack of them, and the only one that really stands out. We haven't really talked about Kiefer Sutherland in this movie at all. Mm. He's good. Speaking of, uh, you know, people that you're seeing their baby faces on. He's yeah. so young. Yeah, he's really good and scary. He's a, yeah, he's a scary kid. Yeah. Uh, and this, he seems like a freaky tough guy. But getting back to the, the original question, though, I would say, you know, in terms of the hierarchy of, of King adaptations, we named some some great ones. I think this is a very good one, though. I think this is top 10 King adaptations. Yeah, maybe, maybe so. Maybe towards the back part of the top 10. But yeah, it, it's, it is. I mean, we I don't think we would be discussing it on the show if, if it weren't. I mean, we are supposed to be talking about a classic film and how it relates to a current movie. So this has got to fall at least, you know, somewhere within spitting distance to that descriptor. It's very interesting to think about how King gets adapted and which ones work and which ones don't. I mean, that was the piece I wrote about in the Washington Post. The conclusion was was that the less King, the better. Mm. We're trying to really capture the essence of his work and throwing, discarding the rest. And also, and this was something, I, uh, the, an insight that, that Tasha had, start with the character's rather than external events, which is really kind of the opposite of the way movies usually work. The example I always use is is The Postman Always Rings Twice, which has been adapted in multiple languages into great film after great film after great film. And that book is all 
action and it's very tight and there's not a lot of internal business going on. And, and uh, with, with King, I think you need to have that kind of connection between the characters and the sort of the monster within or so, you know what I mean? There mm-hmm. has to be that relationship in order to, to work in the best films kind of tap into that. This, I guess is much more, I mean, like, like you said, King approved of it. Um, and it, it has that King feeling, but I mean, you could probably lose some of that and it would be a better movie. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think when King approves of ad- adaptations of his work, it kind of comes down to, did they get what I was thinking when I wrote this? Mm-hmm. And like here, what he was thinking when he wrote this is it was about his own childhood. The reason, like the stated reason that he hates Kubrick's The Shining so much is because he had specific ideas about the Jack Nicholson character being a, a dude who was trying to be a good dad and like was haunted into insanity. And the fact that Nicholson played the character, he felt like that guy could never be a good dad. It could never be a surprise when he went insane. He was already insane. So he his feeling there is I had this one thing in mind this film did not do it mm-hmm. therefore it is a terrible film yeah, and it made is, him which angry is a, which is an it's okay. honest reaction I, to I, I got, got an eye on Steve, this guy named Stephen Weber who's going who's going to do perfect oh god <laughs> that adaptation <laughs> oh is the literal worst well the other thing too is I think Kubrick just thoroughly disrespected King and just kind of took what he wanted and you know threw away his screenplay kind of didn't really care what he thought about the, the wait movie. stanley kubrick had a strong idea of what he wanted for a movie <laughs> and he right. pursued no, it I'm despite just, I'm just saying, like, everything there was, there else was a around kind him? of a i mean god knows there have been dozens of terrible adaptations of stephen king books but for king to focus on the one that everyone thinks is the best i don't know that tells you something i think about a very personal slight i think he felt with that film you know there's so much king and so many king movies we'll probably have an opportunity to, to revisit this question in a future episode but but for now i have one final question could mighty mouse beat superman tasha I mean, Superman has a big significant weakness, and I'm not actually aware of Mighty Mouse having a big significant weakness. So, I I mean, he's not like allergic to cheese from his home planet or anything. So, So it really depends on whether Mighty Mouse could get his his paws on some kryptonite, I think. He's so small. That's a loophole I hadn't considered. He's so small. He would be very hard to hit. Well, which one of these has opposable thumbs? No, they both have opposable thumbs. Oh, what Mighty Mouse does? Oh, yeah. Yeah, you know, Mighty, 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 Mighty Mouse isn't like an actual mouse. Mm. You realize that. He like yeah. he wears clothes. He's got a cape. Super strength. He's super strength. Can super fly. speed. Yep. Okay. The thing what about is, though, Kryptonite? How does he react to that? Uh, well, we, we don't know. I'm yeah. not sure Mighty Mouse TBD. So, but I think, I think Tasha's made a compelling case that it, there's more to talk about there than they might have considered in the film. So we'll leave you to ponder that, and we'll be right back. Now it's time for feedback. This week, we're going to reach back a couple episodes to read some letters about our pairing of Gilo Pontecervo's The Battle of Algiers and Catherine Bigelow's Detroit. Tasha, care to share one? Sure. Uh, This is an excerpt from a longer letter by Aaron from Toronto. We'll post the full letter on our Facebook page. Uh, Aaron also points out that he's written about the movie at the site threebrothersfilm.com. That's the numeral three followed by brothersfilm.com if you're curious. Aaron writes... 
I can comment on the film's relationship to Catherine Bigelow's work as a whole, as I spent two falls ago working through all her films and trying to draw parallels on the entirety of her work. While I don't want to ignore the racial elements of the film, as they're rightly its main focus, I do think the film is also examining the way that perceptions of masculinity play into race relations. I think this works into Bigelow's career focus on masculinity and the ways that specifically men react in violent situations and how those reactions are largely dependent on their perceptions of themselves. In Detroit, this focus comes out mainly with Officer Krauss and Melvin and in how they engage with the situation at the Algiers. However, it also plays out in Larry's PTSD fallout and his inability to perform for white audiences after the incident, as he can no longer compromise his black masculinity as a white product. I'm just trying to think about other Bigelow films where race and masculinity are a concern. I guess we would be, we'd have to go back to Strange Days, right? Oh, well, yeah. But I mean, I think what he's saying here is more about her interest in masculinity, which you certainly see that in, like, in The Hurt Locker, for yeah, instance. Or Blue Steel, for goodness sakes. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that her films are largely about men and their relationships to each other and how they, they prove themselves and how they feel about themselves. In this case, it happens to be about masculinity and race. But in other movies that she's done, it's about different forms of expressing yourself as a man and about holding back on certain emotions and about taking action in, in crisis situations and kind of how the macho impulse affects the choices people make. Yeah, and it might, and it might also reflect her own interest and journey as a filmmaker, too, and, and the types of films that she has made, which which are very often the province of, of men, and um, her, her efforts to kind of find a place in that in that world and kind of deliver with the same sort of impact, uh, but from a different angle, obviously. Scott, you brought up Strange Days. We should point out that we thought about doing that as the pairing with Detroit, and I think it have been really good, but it's it's kind of hard to track down these days. It's, yeah, it's, it's a shame. It's, it's, it's not streaming anywhere, nope. and, it's, and, and like it's out of print on Blu-ray and DVD, and that's certainly a movie. I didn't love it at the time, but it's a movie I'd love to revisit. Oh, I've revisited that time. movie yeah. a lot. Yeah. yeah. You like it still? So? Yeah, I'm a, I'm a huge fan. Yeah. I, when... are, are, you, are you jacked in? to it <laughs> well not, i think not part currently. of what i saw that trailer is like do you want to get jacked in like a billion times to the point where i didn't yeah. want to get jacked in but um well, I, 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 it's I also do. a joke I, that i always always talk to to keith any anytime that anything <laughs> internet related happened at the office that we, we were always getting jacked in <laughs> i mean i had a jack installed into my brain specifically to get jacked into this film and now it's not available so i've just got this port hanging out of my head for no reason no as strange days is actually a movie that i love and when i forget who brought it up as a pairing here with Detroit, but I was all over it. Ken I was Lowry. super excited. Ken Lowry. Ken Lowry brought it up as a choice on Twitter. Oh. And then we, I think we, it was our first choice, uh, ultimately. Which yeah, and then yeah. We, we couldn't get it. And we kind of have a rule here that we're not going to spend a whole bunch of time analyzing a film that nobody gets to see yeah. once we're done. It really would have been an interesting pairing, in part just because uh, it does, you know, as this letter says, uh, have a great deal to do with, with masculinity and, and self-definition. Ray Fine's character is kind of trying to redefine himself after a relationship went wrong. He's trying to redefine himself after his job went wrong. He's trying to redefine himself basically as a low-level de- dealer in psychic experiences that you can plug into your head. And just kind of as an exploration, both of a kind of near-future creepy science fiction world and ultimately as a film that is pretty heavily about race and policing and abuse of police powers and a mystery being unpacked and secrets and a cover-up. Like, it, it would have been a really good pairing. I think that looping back to this letter, Strange Days, maybe more than any of her other films, kind of underlines how, I like, I think this is a really good observation. I think this is true. I think that she is really interested in masculinity. I think that the officers here do kind of let their their definitions of 
who they are and how their policing should work push them way beyond where they should be because you know they can't let it go because they can't back down because mm-hmm. they would feel like less less of men if they if they let this situation go without proving themselves. I mean, it's just tremendous insecurity and weakness that uh, makes them act out as they do, and racism. Yeah. But I mean, it's all it's kind of t- the same thing. It's like, a toxic combination. Yeah. Well, I think that racism comes from a place of insecurity yeah, and weakness. That's true. Continuing along those lines, our discussion of Algiers and Detroit left us with a lot of difficult questions, and apparently we weren't alone. Scott, I think you have a short letter addressing this from JP. Uh, yes, uh, JP uh, writes. One reviewer of Detroit, Alex Jackson at Film Freak Central, wrote something that really got me thinking. Quote. I'm sure that this may read to some as racial tourism, that it's the embodiment of white privilege to be black for a couple of hours and then go home. But I'm not sure where the line is between that and valuing and believing in the empathetic process. End quote. I'm not sure either. What is the line between empathy and tourism? Is there even one or is racial tourism just an extremely cynical way of looking at cinema as empathy machine? I think the answer to that, in this case at least, is fairly clear. Like some of the letters that most objected to Detroit from a racial angle, I think particularly Angelica Bastian's review over at Roger Ebert, which is one that got cited a lot by people concerned over, like the people hand-wringing, I'm going to say, about critics who seem to be implying that white people could not make a film about black black people. Like that's how some people seem to read that review. And I really think like that's going overboard. It seemed to me that that, that review in specific was about the fact that the black characters in this film have so little sense of lives, of inner lives, of things that they want out of life, of of backgrounds. They're thrust on the screen in order to suffer. And I think for the empathy machine to work, you have to be able to put yourself like fully in in the body of somebody in a film. And it's hard to do when they don't feel like a complete character, when they only feel like they're there for a moment of suffering. To me, the difference between tourism and the empathy machine is that tourism is by definition something where you drop in, grab what you want and come back out. And the empathy machine is about like creating something more sophisticated, more nuanced and something more lived in. It seems to me that the people who are most objecting to Detroit as racial tourism were specifically saying this is a drop-in, drop-out film. But I would almost say, though, that it matters where you fall on the film. <laughs> if you like it, you, th- you might think it is empathetic in terms of you are connecting to this very specific experience that these characters are having to go through, of their feeling of being trapped, of having no power and, and uh, recourse. But, of course, if you, you can look at it the other way, as, as, as you look at it, as, and, uh, and, and come on the other side of that equation, you know what I'm saying? What I if think that's just respect- a tautology, though, Scott. What if you respected it but also felt it was deeply flawed? How would you feel then? I mean that is that's <laughs> that is ultimately my position, but I but I almost think that it comes down to you know how you feel about the film. Uh, I just and, I, and, I, not, and not really about the effort on the part of the. I, don't, the I was going to say I don't think we can re- relitigate Detroit in this episode. I mean I don't mean to relitigate it. I'm just I'm saying you, you say depending on how you feel about the film, you will think different ways about it. I think you could just as easily say depending on how you think about the film, you'll feel different ways about it. Like it can it can run either way. Well, we're not going to solve this tonight, but as always, we appreciate when our listeners share their thoughts and recommendations, and, and we really do appreciate a, ro- a lot of robust feedback on this episode or anything related to films. To reach us, you can leave a short voicemail at 773-234-9730 or email us at comments at nextpictureshow.net. We may feature your response on a future episode or post it on Facebook for discussion. Mm-hmm. 
That wraps up this episode of The Next Picture Show. In part two, we'll do our best not to get lured into the sewer by hypnotic harlequins as we take on Stephen King's It. Look for that later this week, or better yet, subscribe to The Next Picture Show on Apple Podcasts or your podcatcher of choice. Find us at nextpictureshow.net, follow us at facebook.com slash nextpictureshow, and follow us at Twitter at at nextpicturepod, so you'll always know when a new episode drops. Until then, we'll be smoking stolen cigarettes after cooking hamburgers by the fire. See you next time. Just as long as you stand, stand by me. And darling, darling, stand by me. Oh, stand by me. Oh, stand now. Stand by me. Stand by me.